This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Maryland Delegate-elect Vaughn Stewart. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thanks very much, Jordan. So Vaughn, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what the journey was running for office? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so even though I, I represent a district in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., so I'm in Montgomery County, which is a suburban county uh, right outside of D.C. I am actually originally from the state of Alabama. And I joke, though I'm serious, that I sort of fled Alabama at the first opportunity um, when I was 18. And I went to college in Philadelphia, which was kind of a big culture shock. And then I went to law school in New York City and then eventually found my way here um, after graduating from law school. Um, but I, I grew up essentially in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains around a lot of racial discrimination. Uh, around a lot of segregation, around a lot of rural poverty um, of all races. Certainly that experience, uh, being around working people and seeing their struggles firsthand growing up, uh, it was a big aspect of of me uh, being interested in getting involved with public service. But I think that kind of the big thing about my background that propelled me into politics was that I've, I've beaten cancer uh, twice now, um, and I just turned 30. So I've had cancer, I had cancer twice before the age of 30. And in all likelihood, that occurred uh, because my hometown in Alabama was used as a dumping ground for PCBs uh, by Monsanto. So even though I cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond all reasonable doubt that uh, Monsanto is the proximate cause for me having uh, these two bouts of cancer, uh, what I can say is that my most recent bout, which was in 2017, which was about the time that I launched my candidacy, uh, I had non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which in the studies is the cancer that is most closely linked to PCBs. And my hometown has been dubbed Toxic Town USA by Newsweek. It has the some of the highest PCB concentrations ever recorded in human history. And basically what Monsanto did was they knew for decades that PCB contamination was harmful to humans and harmful to animals, but they told no one in the town, nor did they even tell their workforce that they had been dumping the PCBs into the air and into the water supply. Basically, it contaminated the entire town. The cancer rates are sky high. And I know um, several people, I graduated from a tiny high school of 30 kids per class. And I know a handful of people either in my class or kind of the classes above and below me that have already had cancer you know, in their 20s. This really informed my decision to run in a few respects. I, I think, first of all, Anytime you face death in the face like that twice uh, at such a young age, it's just a basic reminder that nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. And so I think, you know, if you believe like I do, and I'm sure you do, that at the end of the day, we're trying to help people, we're trying to make the place a better, you know, make the world a better place to live before we move on, it's just kind of a really a, a kick in the ass to say there's no better time like the present to get started. Uh, it was really kind of a reminder, I think, of a disconnect that exists, I think, a lot of times between elected officials on the one hand and regular people on the other hand. So 
a brief anecdote. Uh, I was receiving my third round of chemo at Johns Hopkins, actually, in Baltimore. And um, I had my iPhone in my left hand reading about it, what the Republicans at that time were trying to do to those of us with pre-existing conditions. Uh, this is when they were trying to gut the ACA for sort of the first time. And meanwhile, there's a couple next to me in, in one of these tiny chemo rooms like you see in the movies, and they're wondering aloud how they're going to be able to afford the husband's next life-saving treatment. And so that was a really kind of visceral example of what we see oftentimes in politics, which is that what our elected officials are doing and the priorities they have, there's a huge gap between that and what regular people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And so I was really motivated by that and also kind of just the, the realization that life is short to throw my hat into the ring and see what I could do to bridge that divide. And what exactly can you do in this position to bridge that divide? What actions can you take? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that unfortunately, not representing regular people and not doing what regular people that you represent want you to do, I think is a problem that's not specific to the Republican Party. And it's not specific to Washington, D.C. And we've seen it in Annapolis, uh, where the you know the Maryland's capital is located. And we've seen it among Democrats, not only in Maryland, but across the country. I th- I'm really excited about the opportunity to serve in a state legislature, because I really think that that's where a lot of the more ambitious, progressive, bold policymaking of the next few years, or even the next several years, is going to happen. Because I think certainly with Trump in office, and with a gridlocked Congress uh, maybe being a reality for years to come, I really believe in kind of the laboratories of democracy idea about the state legislatures. And I think that I'm really excited. I know that you had uh, soon to be Senator Salazar on your program not too long ago. I'm really excited about a lot of these young progressives that are getting elected in state houses, because I really think that especially in these blue states where we have democratic majorities, there's an opportunity to move the ball for on all sorts of issues. And I'm happy to get into them. So all sorts of issues to make sure that elected officials' priorities are more closely aligned with people's priorities as opposed to what often happens in state legislatures, I think, which is that the corporations uh, and the large donors tend to rule the roost for many reasons. But I think one of the reasons is we have a declining uh, media, you know, local media coverage of state houses. And I think it's easier for for wealthy folks and large corporate interests to get away with governing public policy when no one is really watching. And so I'm really excited because I think 2018 has been a watershed uh, in terms of progressives. And I think you're, you're part of this, but uh, progressive in the broader progressive community paying close attention to these state races. And I, I really think that we'll reap the, di- the dividends um, in the next few years. So before we dive into the issues, I'd like to dive into the politics of your state. Though Democrats do have a majority in your state legislature, your state also re-elected the Republican governor by a pretty large margin. Why is that? So if if you take the governor out of the equation and you look at the election results in Maryland, the blue wave absolutely came to Maryland. Um, we increased our majority in the House of Delegates by eight seats. So we actually, in a 141-member body in the House of Delegates, we're going to have 99 Democrats. So we already had a supermajority capable of overriding any uh, governor's ve- any of the vetoes from the governor, but now we've expanded that supermajority even more. But the governor's race was absolutely, and we also won some big county executive races, some mayor races recently. Uh, but the, the governor's race was absolutely an outlier, and there were a lot of factors at play. 
number one, there was a huge financial gulf between the two candidates. I don't remember the exact figure, but the governor, Governor Hogan, was able to get on the airwaves very quickly, define his Democratic opponent, Ben Jealous, and the way that he wanted to define him, which is basically a sort of a tax and spend liberal socialist. I don't think Jealous was ever really able to come back from that because he did not have the financial resources. And I think, unfortunately, um, it sort of spiraled out of control. And he did not have the same national profile, and there was not the same national momentum and attention surrounding him that other candidates and other black candidates like Gillum and like Abrams had. And as a result, he just had a, a tremendous financial disadvantage. But then more than that, I think Governor Hogan has been an incredibly adept politician. I think he is very much a conservative, maybe not an absolute right-wing reactionary Republican, but he is a conservative Republican who is extremely adept at masquerading as a reasonable centrist. And unfortunately, a lot of Maryland Democrats bought into that. And I think that probably as many as a third of them, um, of registered Democrats, flipped over to Governor Hogan. And that's the only way a Republican can win statewide in Maryland, because the Democratic registration is something like two to one Democrat. Um, So unfortunately, I I do think that he duped a lot of people. uh, And he was able to take credit for things that the Democratic legislature passed, because anytime he opposed something, the Democrats could just override his veto anyway. So he kind of got away with not pushing much of a policy agenda and just kind of writing it out and not doing anything. And I think a lot of Maryland Democrats viewed him as someone who was a, an example of what the Republican Party could be in contrast to Donald Trump. And how will having a Republican governor affect your legislating? Uh, you said that Democrats do have the power to override his vetoes. Do you see him as a strong impediment to your agenda, a potential ally? Yeah, I, th- I think he's certainly not an ally. He will he will be an impediment. And, and basically what he does is he empowers the most centrist or most conservative members of the Democratic caucus because when he vetoes something, that increases the number of Democratic votes we have to have to pass anything such that we override his veto. A bare majority in the House of Delegates with 141 members is 71 votes. Um, but to override his veto, it's in, the, it's in the mid-80s that you would need. So it basically means that it empowers the most conservative, say, 15 or 20 members of the Democratic caucus, and they really kind of come become the big decision makers. Whereas if we had a Democratic governor, especially one like Ben Jealous, who is a good progressive, who would be willing to sign anything we passed, then all of a sudden we only need to get to 71 and the margins become a lot easier to pass some really bold legislation that we need. So he's absolutely an impediment, but he's not, an, unlike states where Democrats don't have a supermajority, um, he's not a, an insurmountable hurdle. Um, as long as the Democrats stick together, we have 99 votes as long as I think it's eight, as long as we get 85, you know, we can overcome his veto. So we can have some defections. But as long as the Democrats stay strong around things like a statewide, you know, $15 minimum wage or about lowering prescription drug prices or about, you know, boosting up our renewable portfolio standards. So we move to 100% clean energy. If we stick, stick together on those issues, he's not a hurdle at all, but it absolutely makes, it makes it crucial that Democrats, you know, act like Democrats. 
And you you definitely touched upon a few of those, uh, a few issues here, the $15 minimum wage. What are the Democrats' legislative priorities going into this session? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of it is actually not even known yet. The, legis- the session starts on January 9th, and some of it is not known, but we do know a few things. So there was a commission, an education commission that was formed a year or so ago to come out with some recommendations about how Maryland could propel its education system to be sort of back to number one in the country. And it's called the Kerwin Commission. And so they, they're coming out with some recommendations around things like paying teachers, uh, what they deserve around universal pre-K. And that's something that's absolutely going to be on the agenda this time is, are we going to put our money where our mouth is on a bold education agenda to make sure that we have a top-notch system? So that's one. I think also there's been a lot of interest in recent years surrounding what I mentioned, the renewable portfolio standard, increasing that to, to more like 100% by a certain year, say 2030 or 2035, so that we're moving, we're creating green jobs in Maryland, and we're moving towards a sustainable, you know, zero carbon future. So that's going to be an issue absolutely that people are talking about. A $15 minimum wage has, has been something that's been thrown out there for a few sessions, and it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, but I'm really hoping, given that all the new progressives that were elected this past cycle, including myself, I'm hoping that we can get some momentum. And that's really kind of the story around a lot of these issues is you've got some folks that are in more moderate purple districts that are not necessarily gung-ho about some of these progressive ideas. They think that it will hurt them electorally. And you've got a burgeoning uh, minority of progressives. A lot of them are younger. A lot of them have been elected more recently who are trying to push back and are trying to create change. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash Politics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you are going to be one of the only democratic socialists in the legislature. Could you talk about that ideology? What democratic socialism means to me is democracy. I mean, I think that it's about expanding democracy where it exists, namely the political arena, by doing things like getting money out of politics, limiting the power of corporate lobbyists, um, making it easier to vote, uh, and also, and crucially, expanding democracy to where it doesn't exist. And crucially, that's the workplace. You know, these private employers that most people work for are govern huge aspects of their lives. Um, oftentimes what they can wear, what they can say at work, what they can do. And 
they have we, we as a society have very little democratic control over what those rules are. I mean, even something like Verizon, uh, FiOS, which is you know or Comcast, a huge headache for people all the time. We have basically no say so in how they set their policies because those are corporate boards that, and they're legally bound by law to maxi- maximize profits for their shareholders. And so I think that by empowering workers in their workplaces. In a, through a variety of means, unionization, worker co-ops, I think we can bring democracy to the economic sphere and while we're strengthening democracy in the political arena. And of course, a core part of democratic socialism is the workers controlling the means of production. You just mentioned the importance of labor. What exactly does the workers controlling the means of production mean? Right. I mean, I think to me, I mean, you could ask a million different people and you would get different answers on this question. But to me, it means giving regular people the ability to control the institutions that impact them at the end of the day. And so things like public utilities, making sure that we can democratically control those. Things like um, municipal broadband, make sure that we're not relying on private companies who are only accountable for their to their shareholders. Things like in the housing arena, not treating housing like a commodity and something that people can make a profit on, but instead treating it as a human right that we're all entitled to. Uh, same thing in the healthcare arena. Instead of allowing all these companies to make a buck off healthcare, um, acknowledging that this is something that we as a society can band together and control how we provide health insurance and provide healthcare to the entire public. So to me, it's not necessarily the uh, you know the sort of mar- Marxist uh, trope of we need to literally have the workers rise up and take control of the factories. Uh, to me, it's more about encouraging worker co-ops, about bringing things under the public domain that are large industries um, and large entities like public utilities and you know public bank, for example, is something is an, a, situa- a perfect example of where we as citizens could democratically control things like equity or access to loans for low-income people or savings vehicles for low-income people. We could do that through a public bank like North Dakota does, or we could rely purely on the private sector to do it. Um, and so, so when it comes to controlling the means of production, to me, I look at it in terms of democratizing as much as we can. And what does democratization look like in terms of governance? What reforms do you propose? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel very strongly about this. I, I, I personally am trying to practice what I preach. So I'm not taking any contributions from any corporations, any corporate lobbyists, any corporate PACs. And I, I think that should be the norm. I think state houses across the country should be banning corporate contributions. Many of them do. In fact, a lot of southern red states uh, ban corporate contributions in a variety of ways, but Maryland doesn't. We actually are, are a very, you know, have a very pervasive corporate influence through our um, campaign finance laws. So that's one thing. I think public uh, public financing, matching funds is a way forward here. My home county, Montgomery County, actually has been experimenting with public matching on the county level, but it wasn't available to state candidates like myself. And so I'm looking for opportunities to expand that successful model statewide so that candidates are reliant, can be reliant on small dollar donations that are then matched by the taxpayers rather than um, having to just go out there and trying to get these huge checks from corporations. So certainly it's a campaign finance element. It's about making voting easier. I'd love to see um, election day be a holiday. I'd love to see expanded early voting. I'd love to see uh, more robust voting by mail uh, to make it easier for regular people, working people to get out there and cast their ballot. Um, And and it's also just about holding public officials accountable. Um, I want to personally do as many town halls as possible. I 
really think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a great model for a lot of millennial elected officials in terms of engaging with your constituents through the use of social media, which is something that I want to experiment with as well. And, and then it's about ethics. I mean, I, I think that we should make sure that there's no, fin- there's no financial benefit that legislators have no eventual payday for them if they, for example, vote a certain way and then become lobbyists thereafter. So it's all sorts of things. It's voting, it's, a, it's election finance, and it's, it's, it's ethics reform. Speaking of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's garnered a bit of controversy because of something I think is really effective, which is an inside as well as outside approach. She joined protesters in Nancy Pelosi's office, for example, advocating for a Green New Deal. There are a lot of folks on the left who are wary about working within the system, working within electoral politics. How do you view this dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken with a lot of people on the left who sort of think electoralism and and running progressives and running leftists um, for public office is kind of a fool's errand because they ultimately sell out and it's a waste of time and it's a waste of, of, of resources. And I'm sympathetic to those concerns, but I do think that at the end of the day, it's one, electoral politics is one tool that the left can have to make sure that we have a seat at the table. And I think that a, alongside direct action, alongside tenant organizing, alongside of other of other activities that a lot of you know EDSA chapters or progressive you know political institutions are doing, we have to do both. And I think as legislators, Ocasio Cortez has provided a great inside outside strategy that is absolutely crucial. You have to keep one foot outside. You have to maintain contact um, and communication with the activist groups that got you elected in the first place. You have to share information with them. They have to push back on you to make sure that you don't sell out. And then you have to use your sort of inside knowledge of the game too. And it's a delicate balance because, and it's something that at the end of the day, all of us new people, this is maybe the most important issue for us. It's a huge game in sort of emotional intelligence and strategic maneuvering, because on the one hand, you do not want to make yourself such a pariah that, you know, leadership in in any of these state houses sort of sends you out, you know, and you're completely marginalized and you, you have no say so whatsoever. They kill your bills no matter what. They put you on the worst committee. You don't want that outcome. But at the same time, you do not want to be so deferential to, to leadership or so deferential to what folks are telling you to do inside the chamber that you completely lose touch of what is happening in the lives of regular people and what progressive activists do. And so you have to straddle that divide. And I've been really inspired by the sort of balance that Ocasio-Cortez has struck with not only her act, her activism with the Sunrise Movement, but also her approach to the speaker battle, which is she says, hey, you know, I'm going to vote for the most progressive candidate for speaker. Right now, that's Nancy Pelosi. You know, if there was another candidate like Barbara Lee that popped up, maybe I would, yeah, I would, I would absolutely jump on board that train. But until that happens, I'm voting for Nancy. And you'd, I think that the, the crucial thing for progressives is just to be thoughtful about every step of the way how you conduct yourself, building relationships with your colleagues. But um, at the same time, it's so, so crucial to maintain contact with outside groups, whether it's by hiring uh, the you know people from those progressive groups to be part of your staff, um, or whether it's you know allowing them to intern with you, or whether it's just talking to them on a day-in and day-out basis. And how are you going about selecting your staff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, as a as a new person, it was really important. Well, we first of all, we only get one paid staffer. And this is like a, a whole other topic that we could talk about for another episode, which is that 
lobbyists, corporate lobbyists really thrive a lot of times in state capitals precisely because elected officials don't really have very much staff to combat the information they're getting from lobbyists. We can't really do a whole lot of independent research because we don't have very large staffs and we don't have a whole lot of, and they're not very well paid. So it's difficult to get people that are super well qualified. Um, but I was able to actually find there's a, um, there's a delegate who um, is from my home county who actually sort of surprisingly was defeated um, in his primary. And he actually, he, he is a left-wing guy who actually recently switched to the Green Party uh, sort of on his way out the door. But his, um, he, his legislative aide was looking for a, a place to jump. And so I actually snatched him up very quickly because I think it, I think for me to be effective being such a neophyte in Annapolis, it'll be crucial for me to have someone that has some institutional knowledge of how everything works so that I can hit the ground running. But in the future, once I have that knowledge and I can serve as a mentor to others, I really want to make sure that I'm prioritizing getting some like-minded people and some leftists in my office as, as much as I can. And what steps are you taking to ensure that you do stay connected to the activist community? Well, it starts with just literally staying in touch with them. Um, so I, I try to reach out to various members, uh, you know, political directors of labor unions on a regular basis. I stay in constant communication via email or social media with, with people who are members of the activist community. My local DSA chapter is hosting me to chat about my legislative agenda before the session starts. And I'm sure they'll do another event after the session ends with me recapping it. So it's just a matter of being purposeful about who you're communicating with either you know, through private channels and also having regular meetings so that you're updating people and you're sharing information about what's happening on the ground during the session. And that's really the crucial thing. And it's not just, it's not all about progressive activists either. It's also just about regular voters in your in your district. So I've committed to having regular town hall meetings. I've committed to doing a newsletter. I'm going to knock, knock on doors all four years of my term. I think you know a lot of times politicians will just kind of show up every four years and ask for people's vote, but they haven't really done any work in the meantime to listen to people um, and listen to their ideas. So it's something that I feel really strongly about because at the end of the day, if I don't take democracy seriously, then I can't really expect anyone else to. And what advice would you give to folks who want to stay engaged in politics beyond elections and want to know what's going on in the legislative process? Certainly, I think that uh, it depends. It depends on the state or whether you want to, you know, be involved uh, on the federal level. You know, social media is an excellent tool if you can find some folks in a, in either there are elected members of you know the general assembly or any state legislature, or are kind of active in local politics, if you can find some good accounts on Twitter, or some good accounts on Facebook, that's definitely one opportunity. There are still a few blogs and media outlets out there that are doing a great job of covering the state capitol. So one in Maryland is called Maryland Matters, and they have pretty good coverage of kind of the ins and outs of what's happening. So you have to be, you have to look a little bit far and wide to find good sources. I'm hoping to be a source for that. And like I said, I think Ocasio-Cortez, I'm not necessarily as fluent on Instagram, sadly, I'm like a little like a little lame on Instagram. But uh, I, I think that you know, hopefully through things like Facebook Live and through kind of live tweeting different things, I can make it a little bit more of a give and take relationship. I think that um, Annapolis, in a lot of ways, is a little bit antiquated in that department. Where when the once the session starts, a lot of legislators kind of go dark with their social media accounts. But I think there's really an opportunity to engage people, especially during the session and say things like, hey, I'm headed into this committee hearing to discuss X, Y, or Z issue. Uh, what do you guys think? And I'm, I'm really hoping that Ocasio-Cortez serves as a model 
for more legislators and more state legislators across the country to do the same thing so that it's easier for folks, folks who want to stay engaged um, in what's actually happening in their state capitals. And if they want to do that, then you know, make it accessible for them. And lastly, time to plug your social media. How can folks stay in touch with you? Yeah, well, this is my favorite part of the podcast, I guess. Um, so my Twitter handle, though, I may change it, you know, like once um, to something fancy, like once I'm actually inaugurated. But right now it's it's Vaughn. Uh, it's at Vaughn for Maryland is my Twitter handle. So Vaughn is V-A-U-G-H-N and then the number four and then Maryland spelled out. So M-A-R-Y-L-A-N-D. And then my Facebook is is similar. You can find me on there. It's also Vaughn for Maryland, but I think the the uh, word four is actually spelled out um, for Facebook because of, you know, char- Twitter character limitations. But those are the best two ways to get in touch with me. Um, my website, if you want to send me an email or a message is vaughnformaryland.com, all spelled out. Um, and, and absolutely, I, I, uh, I answer all my DMs, you know, like very quickly. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm not at all like a famous or big time politician. So I have all the time in the world to, to field questions or if people want to chat with me offline about getting involved in the electoral process and any advice I have on that front. I'm happy to engage with folks. And if you're in the DC area, I'm happy to grab coffee with you. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we hope to get you back on after you're inaugurated. I would love that. Thanks very much for having me. Of course. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to keep up with the Millennial Politics Podcast by subscribing on iTunes, following us on social media, and tuning into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.